can you now walk us through your research of looking into indigenous people's role in World War II? Um, what what came about for like what jumped out to you about that? Why why wasn't it researched? Why wasn't this an area of interest for so many? Um, yeah, it, it's it is interesting, and and part of it lies in in I think what I mentioned earlier the idea of sort of military history becoming a bit marginalized and separated from social history, and that was developing and growing in the nineteen seventies and eighties and nineties. And there was a real massive growth in, in in the history of indigenous peoples in Canada and the indigenous settler relationships was a really dynamic part of of, of the discipline. There's a lot of really exciting new work being done. But their interest, the interest of those scholars tended to be not in the war or in wars generally. Uh, it was in other issues. Um, people who were interested in studying Canada's military past tended not to think about Indigenous cultures or people, uh, other than in the early colonial eras where Indigenous warriors were important as allies or as enemies of European powers. And so after that, Indigenous people largely disappeared from the meta narrative of Canadian history or Canada's military history. And so what you get is these two fields kind of separated by this wide gulf. And an Indigenous participation in the wars of the 20th century and, and experiences in Canada's armed forces kind of fell into the void in between. Uh, and so occasionally, you know, one person, you know, the odd person from one side or the other would sort of dip a toe in and, and kind of touch on it or look at it briefly. But always, you know, the military students never really invested in learning about Indigenous peoples and cultures and trying to understand both sides of the equation and vice versa. The, those who were coming at it from an Indigenous perspective often didn't read the military history and didn't understand the war effort and, and the impact of war in society and, and how militaries function in the place of Indigenous soldiers and war experiences in that military component. And and so that's kind of where things were when I found the topic and, you know, starting my master's in 1993. Um, and there was not a lot to work with to start. I, I was kind of writing into a void. There is one small book that had been published by a historian from the Canadian War Museum, uh, but it was very, very brief in a lot of ways. Um, and there was not much else. A couple of MA theses had been done uh, around different parts of the of the subject matter. And and so that's kind of what drew me. At, at the same time, you know, it was starting in the 1970s, First Nations veterans who would largely kind of disappeared and been forgotten after the war, began to organize initially in Saskatchewan and then elsewhere because they felt that their stories, their sacrifice, their service had been forgotten and they wanted to see that recognized and remembered. And they also had really strong grievances around their access to veterans benefits and their treatment as veterans in Canada after the war. And so that was what galvanized them to begin to agitate for um, for a hearing, you know, and it took a long time. It took through the 1980s into the 1990s. And then eventually, even while I was writing my master's thesis on government policies around recruitment and conscription of Indigenous people, uh, the Standing Committee on, the Standing Setting Committee on Aboriginal Peoples produced a report, uh, or was it the Standing Committee on Veterans? One of the two produced, a, a, held hearings across the country. Veterans came out and gave their Talk, talked of their experiences, and from that they produced a, port, a report on on these issues that kind of brought it to the political stage for the first time. And then in 1996, of course, the the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples huge report on the stat on the state of Canada's relationship with Indigenous communities, and there's a whole chapter on Indigenous veterans. 
and and the fact that they didn't get equal access to benefits after the wars, that they'd served and been loyal, but then you know been let down in a way uh, afterwards, and that this was an injustice that needed to be corrected. And so, all of that was part of the the political realm in the 1990s, and that's that was part of what was in, I think inspired me to be interested in a subject. I I hope that the work that I could do would help to you know improve or increase recognition and understanding of of the experiences of indigenous uh and you know recruits and their service and and their status as veterans and so i i went on and started my phd in 95 in in ontario that was looking less at indigenous people and more at english canadians perceptions of indigenous people and the way that the war and indigenous military service kind of shaped how people were viewing indigenous peoples um and that eventually was published as as my first book, which was Red Man's on the Warpath, which was a, a a great quote that I'd found in a wartime newspaper, a way that people used to talk about indigenous peoples in the wartime context. Um, and and then as, almost as soon as I'd finished my dissertation in two thousand, and I come back to Calgary uh, for a postdoctoral fellowship, I was contacted by what was then the National Roundtable on First Nations Veterans Issues. This is a process that started in 1999. It was kind of the, the the trying to find a political agreement and solution to the challenges that Indigenous veterans had placed before Canadians in the 90s. And so this was the Assembly of First Nations, Aboriginal veterans organizations from all across the country, sitting down with Department of National Defense reps, Veterans Affairs Canada, and Indian Northern Affairs Canada to try and agree on what had happened. And uh, and so they brought me in in 2000. They'd sort of been arguing for a year, and then they'd worked down to a small group that had actually established quite a successful working relationship, and they were all kind of on the same page. They did want to get a clearer sense of what had happened. I'd already done a lot of the research, so I was well-placed to kind of step in, and all the different departments had pooled their resources, their their personnel data files, and all that sort of thing. And so I had access to a lot of information that wouldn't have been available otherwise, and and uh, over the span of about oh, two months, I, I, they flew me out to Prince Edward Island, where Veterans Affairs is located, to look at personnel case files. I, I did some additional research in Ottawa for a week, and then I went home and wrote the equivalent of a master's thesis in about a month. <laughs> it was crazy. But it was really interesting process. I, I just come out of a PhD where... That's a very lonely process. It's a long road as a grad student. You're, you get off in your own, you know, wilderness. A lot of people never get back out again. And and the only thing you're thinking about is, okay, as you're writing stuff, well, is anybody going to care? But mostly you're worried about your supervisor and your committee because they're the ones who are going to judge you when you finish. Writing this report was entirely different. It was supposed to be a consensus document, which meant First Nations veterans organizations, Assembly of First Nations, and the government departments all were going to have to sign off on it. And as I was writing stuff, I felt like I had people looking over my shoulder saying, ooh, I wouldn't say it that way. Or no, 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 you can't say that. So it was, it was really, it was a challenge for sure to write it. Um, and, but the, the report itself eventually was accepted as a consensus document, which I was really proud of. And uh, and eventually in 2003, uh, the government offered a formal apology to, to First Nations veterans and compensation to veterans and to their descendants, immediate descendants. So it did come to a successful fruition in that sense that that Indigenous veterans' grievances got a hearing and and there was there was an effort made to to right that wrong, 
who was leading that? Was like was that just government officials? Was that Stephen Harper at the time? Who was kind uh, of at the helm of allowing this to come to like a healthy close? It, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the two thousand three. Who was who was in power? Was it that was pre Harper? I think that was still. I can't remember who was in power in two thousand three. Well, I can remember like a hundred years previous, but anyway, no worries. Um, uh, really what was driving it was, was the pressure from the veterans. Right. That was really the driving force in all of this, forcing it onto the political stage. And then at that point, it became important. It became, I think, impossible for the federal government to ignore because what, what happens in the 1990s is there's this explosion of remembrance that's, that's sparked by the 50th anniversary of D-Day in 1994, and then the 50th anniversary of VE Day in 1995. Those are really important um, anniversaries. And, and it's like all of a sudden, not just in Canada, but all across the Western Allied countries, there's kind of an explosion of remembrance. Some scholars have called it the memory boom, uh, where we kind of rediscovered our, our veterans. And, and a lot of Canadians, people started to go to Remembrance Day ceremonies again, like large numbers of people that take their kids that didn't happen, you know, when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s. This was new. It was different. And and one of the things I think that really stunned people was part of the ceremonies for VE Day, uh, the anniversary in 95, was a, to be a parade of Canadian veterans. And a lot of Second World War veterans went back to for, for the celebrations and the ceremonies of the anniversary. And there were several thousand of them that paraded through the streets of the Dutch city of Appledore. And it's not a big city. It's, I think... A, Couple hundred thousand, something like that, and and they thought maybe one hundred and fifty thousand people would show up for this, something like that, and instead it was like a million plus. People came from all over the Netherlands because the Dutch remember, they remember because it was Canadian forces that largely liberated the Netherlands, and and in particular as the German army pulled out in 1944-45 that winter, they they ripped everything edible out of the country, so the Dutch were starving when the Canadians took over. Uh, the lands and and so they fed them and helped keep them alive and and that connection has remained really close ever since and so you know grandparents were bringing their grandkids to to see the heroes who had who they remembered having saved them in the, some in that winter that starvation winter and and you know the the coverage on CBC was was kind of amazing and I think a lot of Canadians were kind of stunned you know it was these veterans who were. They were in their seventies at that stage. A lot of them, you know, they were they were not the most mobile. It was supposed to just be an hour or two. I think it took them like six or seven hours to get through the whole town because <laughs> everybody was, you know, giving them gifts and there was it was like the the liberation celebrations of nineteen forty five, uh, and it was really powerful, and really moving, and and all of a sudden Canadians thought, wow, these guys did something really amazing. I, I can't believe I've never thought about this or never remembered this, and so it became really politically difficult for the government to then turn a blind eye to the grievances of Indigenous veterans. Right. They had been there. They had served equally alongside other Canadians, and they'd come home and they hadn't been treated equally. And that was an injustice that just couldn't be allowed to, to stand. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the federal government, to their credit, uh, you know, the various, and certainly all of the representatives that I met from the various government departments were very supportive of the process, totally acknowledging that there, there had been major problems in the way that those benefits had been administered uh, and uh, we're looking for a way to find you know some reconciliation in this process.
Right. That is such a, a moving story to have kind of that reoccurrence, to have that revival. And mm. I, to be honest, I wouldn't mind seeing that again. And I hope that we can continue to work towards that because I think tying in Indigenous people into these discussions of Remembrance Day, hopefully people, I know a lot of people are looking for reconciliation with Indigenous communities. So hopefully we can have that rise perhaps again uh, through a new lens. I, th I think it's actually an important thing. I mean, reconciliation, a lot of reconciliation has to be about remembering some pretty dark and awful things in Canada's history and, and coming to grips with that before we can find a, a path to, to reconciliation. But I think maybe there's also value not only in remembering those stories, but also stories like the Second World War, where, you know, Indigenous and non-Indigenous soldiers served as equals uh, in a common cause and in a spirit of mutual respect and comradeship and achieved remarkable th and important things together. Those kinds of stories, I think maybe we need to foreground some of those too as part of this process of reconciliation. I completely agree. And that's why it's such a pleasure to have you on is because I think that you're at the forefront of this. You've kind of paved the road of how we can start to have the conversation. And without people like yourself to kind of help out inform the conversation, I think that it's a low, like I've had people say, like, did you hear about how Indigenous people were treated or that they went to war? And it's like, that's the knowledge they have. That one sentence is, yeah. is what they have to contribute. Whereas I think we can get more into the weeds a little bit of understanding how that all came about because it's my understanding, perhaps this was with specifically the Great War or perhaps World War II, that Indigenous people had to give up their status in order to serve. Is that, am I correct? That's widely believed to be the case, but that was not actually the case. Okay, please. Um, but I mean, yes. the fact that you say that is really interesting because it's clear that that, that circulates in Indigenous communities today. I've been, I've been asked or told that dozens of times throughout my career. Right. Uh, it's very widely held belief. But the reality is that there was no policy that required them to sacrifice uh, status either to enlist or when they came back. Uh, it was never talked about in Indian affairs, there, um, anything like that. Now, some soldiers did uh, enfranchise and surrender Indian status when they came home. And it might be that, I, and I can certainly imagine that there would have been enthusiastic Indian agents who were, of course, it looked good for their reports to their superiors to say, oh, and I, you know, I've got this many people I've enfranchised. Sorry, could you tell us about enfranchise? Yeah, enfranchisement was was a, a sort of legal process of unmaking a status Indian. So it was the process by which a status Indian would extinguish their status, they would receive their share of band funds, they would re receive citizenship benefits or uh, rights and responsibilities, and they were no longer considered an Indian. But of course, that also meant they, they could no longer enter an Indian reserve because you could not trespass on a reserve if you were not status. Um, and so for them, it also meant surrendering any connection to family, community, culture. And so most people didn't do it. It was re a relatively rarely used thing, which, um, you know, the government uh, administrators often didn't understand why the people wouldn't want to, to take this step. But for Indian agents, this was something that they tried to encourage, of course. And so I can very much imagine that overly enthusiastic Indian agents might have coerced or lied and said, well, you have to enfranchise in order to enlist. Or now that you've been a soldier, you know, you have to enfranchise, you can't come back. And used it as an opportunity to try and encourage or enforce more enfranchisement. And so I do think that occurred. But the overwhelming majority, the vast majority of status Indians who served were still status Indians after the war. Most returned to their reserve communities after the war.
That is very interesting. And I'm so grateful that you were able to shed light on that because that is something that I've, I'm parroting from people who have told it to me. And so it's good to be able to, to clean the air and, and have a better understanding of how that came about. Do you know some of the motivations for Indigenous people being willing to participate? Because you could make the argument like, well, we're not being treated very well. Like there's Indian residential schools. There's all these terrible things the government's done for us. Why would we want to go fight a war in a country that we didn't even know existed? prior to you guys getting here so how did that did you learn about that yeah that that is and and often that's the big question you know that's part that was part of what i was interested in indigenous people are are marginalized they're oppressed they're treated terribly why would they fight to defend the society that oppresses them it seems it seems illogical in a lot of ways and so that is often the very first question people ask me and it's one i've always been interested in and and there is no one answer um that that you know people enlisted for a wide range of reasons and that was the case whether you were indigenous or not indigenous and many of those reasons were shared you know uh, after the depression for a lot of people it was a steady job and and good pay you could send half your pay home to your family or if you had ben- uh, dependents you had dependents benefits so as a means of contributing to your family income supporting both yourself and others great thing and that was the case whether you're indigenous or not especially early in the war when there weren't other jobs available yet. So that's certainly one. For others, you know, uh, a sense of adventure, a chance to travel. In this day and age, people couldn't just travel overseas. It was really only the very wealthy who could do that kind of international travel. Well, in this case, somebody else is going to pay to ship you to Europe. You get a chance to see the world. And that was the case, whether you're living in, you know, small town Chilliwack or in the kind of stultified atmosphere of a reserve where you're kind of really under the Indian agent the chance to get out and, and to experience something else and to have a sense of adventure, especially if you're a 19, 20-year-old kid, you know, that would have been a big deal. And so that was certainly there. And, and then I think maybe a sense of duty or patriotism. Um, now, duty or patriotism might have looked or, f- or been articulated slightly differently if you were a status Indian than if you were not. But I, I think the, the word still fits, even if we might um, shape it somewhat more differently. So there's lots of shared things that would motivate people to to go to an enlistment center. But there were also some things that were kind of distinctive and unique to Indigenous societies and communities that were part of the equation as well. You know, um, some communities cherished the role and and honored the role of warrior. In the Plains, for instance, uh, Iroquois societies in Ontario and Quebec, warrior status was important socially and culturally within your own community. And so the opportunity to to, to go off to war to achieve that would have been something desirable for a young man, you know, uh, f- and that comes from within their own community. But not every community felt that way. You know, Stalo here in, here in the, and, and most Coast Salish had a more problematic view of warriors within their, their culture and communities. And, and so Stalo men that went away to war sometimes were going against the wishes of their community, you know, and, and were ostracized a little when they came back because warriors are, dangerous people that, that are that can be a little problematic. Um, so it wasn't all just the same in that way. But for those communities where warrior status mattered, that was something that motivated some people. Um, others went to war because they saw it as honoring the sacred covenant of the treaties that had been signed between their people and the crown, that they were trying to hold, uphold those treaties. Um, and, and so in many parts of the country, you know, this was seen as something that was uh, uh, you know, for their community, they should be doing this. 
Um, still others would have done it as a kind of political act, as a statement that of equality, that they had the right to do this. They had the right to belong. Um, and Tommy Prince uh, was a OG Cree from Manitoba, and he became the most highly decorated Indigenous soldier of the Second World War. And and he he said that you know he enlisted because he wanted to prove that an Indian was as good as any white man. And he tried to lead by example. He never let people forget he was Indigenous. He was proud of it. He wore it on his shoulder like a like a badge, and and he probably took more risks and and accomplished remarkable things in part because he had that chip on his shoulder. He was trying to prove a point, and and he went back to Korea for most of two tours uh, as well. In part, still I think trying to to make that statement. So you know th those would have been distinct rationales for some indigenous people to enlist that that maybe other parts of the the population wouldn't have shared. Sorry, could you say that person's name again? Thomas Prince. Yeah, okay. he he was uh, he became a sergeant. He actually served in a, a really unique specialist unit called the First Special Service Force. It was made up jointly of Canadian and American troops, and they were especially trained in in paratrooping and mountain warfare and that sort of thing. And they served in Italy uh, with the United States Army. Uh, he was awarded a silver star for some of his actions there. Uh, as well as other medals, um, and then became a uh, you know an important leader of, of small unit tactics and patrolling in, in Korea subsequently. Um, so Tommy Prince is a he he's a, a somewhat tragic figure in some ways because it's quite clear that for him military service in the war gave him a sense of purpose, a sense of pride in himself and his place. But he struggled when he got back home. You know that that the time the years between the Second World War. And the outbreak of the Korean War were difficult. I think he felt a bit lost. Uh, I think he struggled in his marriage. And, and so when Korea broke out, he, he jumped at the chance to kind of rediscover that, that sense of himself as a, as a war hero in a way and, and went off to serve in Korea. After he came back from Korea, probably suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, you know, he, he struggled again to find his way in life and eventually wound up living in poverty and anonymity in the streets of Winnipeg. And he was kind of rediscovered in the 1970s, um, just before his death. Um, and so, in a way, kind of like in the United States, Ira Hayes is, is a famous, he was a Pima, first name, an indigenous person. Uh, he was one of the soldiers who had been famously photographed raising the flag over Iwo Jima, you know, sort of one of the iconic images of the United States Second World War effort brought back to the United States to go through big, um, you know, fundraising drives and that sort of thing and really struggled with the, all the all the interest and all the all the attention put to him and, and ended up uh, becoming an alcoholic and died of exposure in a ditch in, you know, 1953. Uh, and so Ira Hayes and, and, and Tommy Prince in some ways are kind of similar tragic figures, I guess, of, of, of war heroes who came back and, and wound up outside of Canadian or American society, wound up, you know, not being able to enjoy the peace that they'd sacrificed to help achieve. Yeah, I, that makes me think of, um, 
I don't, I think it was the Vietnam War where a bunch of soldiers had come back, but they were using, I think, some sort of drug, like coca- it was cocaine or it was some sort of drug. Mostly heroin. Yeah, heroin. Yeah. And then uh, the people who ended up being able to get off it with very little side effects and very long term, no long term effects were the ones who were able to return to their family, return to that suburban life um, and like reintegrate into their community. But the people who struggled with those addictions were the people who weren't able to return home to the community, to yeah. their family and to reconnect properly with the people who perhaps missed them. And um, I think that that is something that you struggle with anytime you you go off to war is you're going to have a certain subsection of the population that really develops who they are through that lens of the world. And it's very hard to take off that lens when you get back and get back used to playing board games, reading the newspaper, having a cup of coffee when you've been in such a traumatic place and really adapted to it and been able to figure out a way to move forward as a consequence. And you see that, you know, a lot of First Nations veterans, as with other veterans, but it's it's really evident for First Nations veterans. A lot of them were restless when they got home, you know, that it was hard to find stimulation in everyday life after being in a war where the intensity of your lived experience is often something you simply can't and maybe wouldn't want to replicate in your everyday life. But they, they struggled to settle down into their relationships, into work. Many left the reserve. Um, it became part of the wave of urbanization of Indigenous communities that starts to happen in the 50s. Well, it had started during the war, but then it kind of reversed a little at the end of the war and then takes up again in the 1950s. And a lot of those were were veterans trying to find something, uh, trying to find their way in life and, and, and find a better career and, and that sort of thing. And some of that was maybe a legacy of those war experiences that they never quite were able to let go. Right. Could you tell us about how Indigenous people may have, uh, not necessarily just from Canada, but across Australia, the United States, how they may have impacted the war for the betterment of of succeeding? Yeah, it, it's one of the things that I, I looked at in my my research is sort of exam- like having looked at the Canadian experience, I was curious to look at that kind of transnationally, because if you look at the United States, and the, the experience of Native Americans in the United States, if you look at New Zealand and Maori uh, people there, or of Aboriginal Australians and Torres Strait Islanders in Australia, there's a lot of remarkable parallels. You know, these are all indigenous minorities living within a broader, mostly Anglo-Saxon settler society. All of them participated in the Second World War, uh, often in very similar ways, uh, sometimes were liable to conscription. Uh, participated on the home front, got involved in the workforce in a way that they never had before, and contributed in really important ways to to the overall Allied war effort. Both, you know, fighting in the battlefront, uh, and and also economically at home, and and through helping to create that broader sense of political unity that we're all in this crusade together. Uh, and that that did matter to people, you know, um, that was important. And so those contributions are really quite manifest. And, and sometimes they're more obvious. You know, in New Zealand, Maori leadership sort of demanded a segregated Maori battalion. They wanted their soldiers to fight together in an infantry battalion, not a labor battalion like had been created in the First World War. Uh, and that was un- that was relatively unique. There are, there's a few other segregated units, but most Indigenous people served as individuals integrated in. And so their service was maybe not as visible as the Maori Battalion, but the Maori Battalion has a very visible service. Uh, they initially had, had white officers, but you know, as as more Maori officers began to get 
experience. They moved up the ranks, and there were half a dozen different Maori battalion commanders during the war. And the Maori battalion was became quite famous as one of the best of the units within the New Zealand division. Um, famous for unorthodox, sometimes very aggressive tactics. They were very successful, feared by their enemies, um, took very high casualties, maybe in part because they were so aggressive. Um, but Maori people also had a very, you know, kind of a, a strong warrior culture uh, that that lent itself to to this this activity. And that Maori battalion was this really manifested this visible presence of an indigenous contribution to the New Zealand's war effort in a way that non-Maori New Zealanders could cheer and appreciate and and want to, you know, reciprocate in a pre, in uh, in the wake of the war. Uh, to to try and do better in their relationship with Māori. That is so interesting. And I'm interested to also know what some of the challenges they faced um, after they came back were, more specifically, because I think of, at least in the Fraser Valley, I'm well aware of uh, the struggles, the lack of access, perhaps, historically, to resources, to address PTSD, to to get resources. Uh, it seems like Indigenous communities were already at kind of a deficit to help their people get through perhaps traumatizing events that had occurred and then to come back to that community that didn't have those resources. What did you see through your research in that? It's an interesting story and it's it's actually a bit mixed because the reality is there's there's almost no resources for any veterans. Uh, the idea of what we today call PTSD in the Second World War is called battle fatigue or combat exhaustion. And there was more understanding of it in the Second World War than the First World War, where it's called shell shock. But there is still not the same understanding of of the need for post-war rehabilitation and counseling and all of that sort of thing. None of that was available. You know, for, for veterans of the war, counseling was what you did at the Legion Hall with your buddies over a beer or many beers. Um, that was kind of as much as you got. And and there's actually some suggestions that that in fact, because of certain cultural practices within in indigenous communities, that sometimes indigenous soldiers actually had more social and cultural methods to heal right. in a way uh, than was the case for non-Indigenous soldiers. And, and a really prominent, one of the very earliest uh, academics um, to begin to chart the idea of Indigenous military service in the United States, Tom Holm, who's an Indigenous academic, is uh, he wrote some really interesting research about First Nations or Native American uh, veterans of, the, of Vietnam and how healing ceremonies, sweat lodge, and other cultural practices in some ways may have provided actually better support to Native American veterans than non-Indigenous veterans in the United States uh, received. Because, uh, you know, in a much more individual individualistic society where there aren't institutional supports, it was kind of up to your family or your spouse to try and somehow help you, but they didn't know how to help you often. And, and, you know, many men return struggling with addiction and other, and other issues. And so, but, but because indigenous societies were more collective, more communal, uh, and there were, there were cultural provisions for how do you deal with warriors coming back from, from war? How do you, how do you help them heal? How do you help them reintegrate into society uh, in a healthy way? Uh, you know, those societies, and, and many of those practices were still, were still used, were still practiced. Uh, you see that in New Zealand, you see the United States, and I think you would also see that here in parts of Canada as well. 
but not in every community because indigenous communities are so culturally varied. And, and so, you know, first of all, perhaps there wasn't that mechanism, but for Plains Cree or Assiniboine, there might've been uh, in a way that was perhaps more supportive. So it's, it's a more mixed pay package, I think, in, in the post-war years. I don't disagree. And that just you making those comments makes me think of the sweat lodge and and sitting with elders and having those conversations that perhaps those were the resources that they needed within their community that would have helped them get through those processes. I had never thought about it that way because we have such an institutionalized view of what counseling needs to look like, what services to fix problems need to look like in order to be effective. And that's not always the case. Having healthy dialogues with uh, an elder might be what that person needed in order to kind of reintegrate and having those conversations on a weekly basis is counseling. It's just not done by a person who's registered under the Canadian Counseling Associate. Like, it's just different. It is. It is, you know, and and, and one of the commanders of the Maori Battalion talked about this. He, His brother was killed in a battle in North Africa. And when he heard about this, he went over to the, you know, they'd captured some German prisoners and he just killed them in cold blood. He was so so furious, so angry. And and he said he was like that the rest of the war. He just, he was ruthless. He killed anybody he got the chance to kill on the German side. Until he got home and and they performed the pure, you know, the elders kind of helped them through. And this, within Maori society, there was a ceremony to to take that that violence and and the, the anger out of the warrior so that they could then be successfully part of the community again. Uh, and I think for, for many people, that would have been a really important and valuable thing. And, and you're right, we do tend to think of these things in an institutionalized way, and we're still struggling with it. You know, Afghanistan revealed both to the United States and the Canadian armies, they were utterly unprepared for the trauma and the PTSD that our soldiers returned with. And a lot of them really suffered in silence. The sports weren't there. There wasn't still enough understanding of it. Um, and, and there, you know, after the second world war or Korea, there was, there was nothing. And so unless you have those communal supports, it falls to the individual. Yeah, that has got to be so difficult to come back and to have to be your own best advocate because I've talked about this before. When you're going to see your doctor, you really should go in with your significant other or somebody who's close to you because you'll downplay the impacts. You'll downplay the pain that you've been suffering. My partner struggled with that. We've She's struggling all weekend long. We go in Monday and she's like, yeah, I'm doing okay. Like, it's not great. And it's like, all weekend, you, like, you could barely get out of bed. Like, yeah. you were suffering. And I think that's so important to have have that and so many relationships I think lack that person who's able to say this is how they normally are and this is what they're going through that's significant and to be gone for so long and come back I think that there's likely with the spouse a certain amount of guilt that they don't understand and they don't want to assume and so they take more of the passenger seat of like I'm going to let you figure this out and whenever I've watched movies on and like movies aren't perfectly accurate but you see the spouse kind of go like I don't know but I don't want to judge I don't want to assume I don't want to force them into a doctor's office to try and fix this so it places kind of everybody yet like they're stuck in the same position they were in I, yeah for sure i think that that's very much that's very much part of how that equation works out um and and you know the ones that suffer are the veterans because you know and they used to talk about it as you know people would come home with ghosts haunting them um and those linger for years and years and years and the people who are you know trying to help them aren't trained and don't know what they're going through and can't really under, understand, which is one of the reasons why veterans always went to Legion Halls, because the only people they could talk to 
were the other people who had experienced what they had experienced because they're the only people who understood them. Yeah. And so that mutual, and it was really important. And, and, and especially coming out of the military, the military, one of the things that training, basic training and, and the experience of combat welds you into, into a brotherhood, a closer than brothers, right, is often the kind of terminology that soldiers speak about the intensity of connections that they had with each other in their small units. That's what kept them going. That's what got them through. And then you bring them home and you break that all up and you just say, go home and you're just John now or, you know, Bob or whatever. And that, that sense of connection to the group is lost. Yeah. Um, and, and so the, the Legion Hall becomes really important in that sense as that place to at least have bits of that reconnection. Um, and but, I mean, for Indigenous people, that was really hard after the war too, because Legion Hall served alcohol. And up until the new 1951 Indian Act was passed, it was illegal for a status Indian to enter an establishment that served liquor. So status Indian vets couldn't go to a Legion Hall. They were cut off from that counseling, social connection center that was so important to every other veteran. Unless they gave up their statuses. Unless they gave up their status. Interesting. Yeah. That is, that is fascinating. And so sort of tragic in a way. Can you tell us about, I've heard a lot about veterans benefits. Uh, it's been in the news, I think more when Harper was uh, the leader of Canada. And it's definitely usually in the news with the United States. Can you give us a lay of the land uh, for people who don't understand what what are the services that they kind of got previously? How has it been improved? And is there something that we could be doing more so? Yeah, that's a, a big topic. Um, there is a long track record of veterans' benefits. Uh, the first time in the First World War, First World War benefits were quite meager, um, a little bit mean-spirited in terms of how they gave out pensions and stuff. They were kept small to try and force veterans to keep working uh, and that sort of thing. And and so in the Second World War, the, the people who put together the architecture of the Veterans Charter, which is a whole bevy of different programs and legislation, looked at the First World War experience and were determined to try and do a better job second time around. They were learning from their previous experience. And and they actually started planning for this almost as soon as the war broke out. You know, the first committees were established in 1940 to begin planning for what this is going to look like. And, and in the end, Canada's Veterans Charter was actually this really broad very flexible, very generous, maybe one of the most generous veterans benefits programs developed by any of the combatant nations during the war. And, and it came in sort of three different tiers. The first tier was a bunch of benefits, minor kind of things that you would get as you exited the door when you were demobilized. So you'd get a, you know, a month of, of uh, pay that would so give you like, like exit pay. You'd get some money to buy civilian clothes again, because of course you'd been wearing nothing but fatigues for for five years, you didn't have any clothes. They'd do mental or uh, medical and, and uh, dental exams, and there were a variety of other sort of sort of finite kind of transition, immediately transitional benefits. And then the second tier were the most important. They were the the ones that were supposed to help veterans reestablish, resettle into civilian life, and hopefully into a new career or into their old job if it still existed. And that was one of the benefits that if your job still existed, it was guaranteed to you when you returned. And so all those people who were employed during the war, a lot of women, a lot of indigenous people, other minorities, were forced out of those jobs for to make room for returning vets to come back to those jobs. They also had privileged access to civil service jobs if they were qualified. Um, but the main benefits, the first one was what was called a, uh, a reestablishment credit. Actually, I should back up. One of the 
in the first year, there was a uh, um, rehabilitation, no, not rehabilitation, a war service gratuity. This is basically the thank you from the Canadian government. It was based on the number of months you'd served and you got a top up for the number of six month blocks you'd spent overseas. And, uh, and it, you know, it, it ranged a lot. If you were, if you'd only just started serving in 44, late 40, or, you know, 45, you might only get 170 or 200 bucks or something. If you'd been in for five or six years, it could be like a thousand bucks, which was a lot of money in those days. That would be like an annual blue collar salary uh, at the start of the war. So that was good money. And that would be paid out to you at your rate of pay, depending on your rank, for as many months as it lasted. So again, you had money to help you transition in the short term. So in that second tier of benefits, then the first was the war or the uh, uh, the reestablishment credit, and it was equal to the amount of your war service gratuity, but you didn't just get cash. You it was like a, an account you could buy stuff from, so it could be used to get household goods. If you were going to set up a house, you needed pots and pans, furniture, that sort of thing. You could use it to get a truck. Let's say if you wanted to start a trucking business or something, a delivery business, uh, to buy tools if you were if you were a mechanic or something. And, um, and so there are a lot of different ways it could be used. And that was what most veterans did. The vast majority of veterans came back, they got the reestablishment credit, used that to set up a house and found work, got their old job back, whatever the case might be. Probably over 70% did that. The second option, and all of these were mutually exclusive, if you chose one, you couldn't do the others. Second option was education. You could either choose to go to university if you qualified or to vocational school. And the government would provide monthly uh, monthly stipend and pay for your tuition and books, as long as you kept your, your grades in good standing. And, and that was really valuable for a lot of veterans. In fact, Canada's universities exploded in size. New ones started to get built to accommodate all of the, the veteran students who came into Canadian universities. And they tend to be excellent students who are very dedicated, very determined, very focused on their work. And um, and so, you know, maybe, maybe 15, 20% of veterans actually went into either vocational school or went to university. Um, and then the last program was the Veterans Land Act. And this was quite flexible. It could, it was primarily about getting farmers onto the land as veterans onto the land as farmers, either in a small holding, like something that would be a supplemental kind of income. You could use it to have us to get a small mobile uh, timber mill or to uh, start a, a fur farm. And it could also did add commercial fishing opportunities as well. So it was quite a flexible, quite a flexible program. Uh, the main VLA grant, uh, grant and loan option was up to $6,000. And if you paid it off in good standing, the last 2320 would be forgiven. Now, the problem with that is that you couldn't get one of those if you were on an Indian reserve. Because Indian reserve land is held in trust by the Crown for the good of the community. Therefore, a bank cannot foreclose and seize property from a, an Indian reserve. So they will not give a loan to anybody on reserve. Right. So status Indian veterans couldn't qualify for a VLA grant and loan. And so they had to add in a special section to that legislation, 35A, that made just the grant portion available, 2320 So they didn't have to pay it back. But it wasn't actually enough to get a farm going. Even $6,000 was not enough. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> and that's why after the war, there are additional grant programs and loan programs that are made available to Veterans Land Act settler or farmers so that they could build their farms into equitable and viable economic um, businesses. 
And so instead for Indian uh, veterans, if they could get this, and, and in fact, Indian Affairs pushed Indian veterans to get the VLA 2320 grant, they would use it to get them a house. So, but you couldn't usually build a whole house. Usually it was like bare stud walls inside. So sometimes they could find a little extra money to help finish the interior. But that wasn't the purpose of the grant. The grant was not to necessarily be a housing program. It did work that way for a lot of other veterans as well. But it all, the, the whole point of it was to actually help establish you in a, a, a way of life, in a way to make a living so that you could support yourself and your family going forward. And so instead, Indian Affairs essentially was using it to augment their inadequate on-reserve housing budget, which was very meager. And a lot of veterans were living in appalling circumstances. In fact, there's a huge housing crunch throughout Canada during the war years um, that, that's felt by everybody. And, and so on-reserve housing is desperately overcrowded, very ramshackle in many, many communities. And so it, this did provide some benefit in terms of improved quality of life. The problem was it was a finite thing. And it didn't help the veteran establish themselves in a career or with a way to make a living to support themselves going forward. And so that's one of the grievances that people had is that it, in a way, kind of Indian Affairs interference in this kind of mutated the purpose of these grants and instead used it to to augment Indian Affairs, you know, budgets. And you've also written quite a few books and written articles. Can you tell us about those books, um, where people can find them, and what what they're about? Yeah. Um, in, in history, the book is still really important to us. In a lot of other disciplines, they don't really write books anymore. But for history, writing big monographs is still the major achievement of a of your academic career. And so I've been fortunate to be able to produce two major books, either as the primary or, or, or uh, contributing author, and a third where I was another contributing author. My first one was based on my PhD thesis, and it's called The Red Men's on the Warpath. And it's about the, the image of the Indian in, this, in uh, English Canada in the 1930s and 40s. And uh, that was published in 2004 by UBC Press, uh, is still available through their website. Um, and uh, the, the, since then, I've published lots of articles. Most of that's academic information. But uh, my second major book just came out in 2019 with Cambridge University Press. And that's the transnational look at Indigenous people uh, in the Second World War in Australia, New Zealand, the United States, and Canada, and looking at it across those four nations and comparing and contrasting the, the different patterns and the similarities and trying to make sense and explain uh, you know, what we can tease out of that. And that was a crazy and vast undertaking. It took me more than a decade and a couple of different collaborators to to put together and, and uh, you know, thousands and thousands of archival documents from each country to, to work with, not to mention all the literature that was published in each country on the subject or near related subjects. It was a kind of crazy undertaking. And I was really proud to, to be able to finish that off. I worked with, uh, it's actually an American scholar, but he's, he's based at uh, the Catholic University in Australia, in Melbourne. And I uh, was an expert on, on Aboriginal participation in the Second World War in the United States as well. And I was stronger on Canada and New Zealand. So it worked as a good pairing. Um, and we were able to, to complete that book and bring it out with one of the major international academic presses, which I'm really proud of. That's sort of my magnum opus. And that was that was sort of my final statement on Indigenous uh, participation in the wars. And I've tr started to turn the corner in terms of topics since then, although I'm still known for that. So 
I still be I'm drawn into that sort of thing. I, I did a an interview for a Quebec documentary uh, company last year on Indigenous participation in the war. Um, I just did a um, actually an aftermatter paid uh, section for a graphic novel by an Indigenous author. Uh, it was Dene. Uh, from Northwest Territories, and uh, talking about because it touched on indigenous participation in the war and the uranium mining in the region that fed into the atomic program of the Manhattan Project. And so I spoke a little bit about that. Uh, for that, um, I'm going to be giving a talk uh, webinar for the, the BC Museums Association in, on November 10th, uh, along with another gentleman talking about remembrance and. And those communities that aren't always included in remembrance. And so I'll be talking about Indigenous veterans in remembrance and, and how museums might be able to engage that topic and maybe broaden their, their holdings and the way that which they present and, you know, contribute to the collective memorization, commemoration of those events in their own communities. Mm -hmm.